Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9. And we are continuing our series in what we've called Imago Dei, which is a Latin term for the image of God. And we've seen how God has created all people in his image. And what we're going to see today is that because he has created all people in his image, every single human being has a right to life. And so if you know anything about kind of modern pop culture entertainment, you would know of a series that goes by the name of Squid Game. Now, I've not watched this, but I've done a little bit of research on it, and I've heard a few news uh, people talk about it in the media. And what I can gather is that this show, which is was, was I don't know if it still is, the most popular show on Netflix for a time. The purpose of the show, or the theme of the show, is that they've taken people and they've imprisoned them, they've taken away their name, and they've given them a color shirt and a number. So right, right there you see that they've taken away their human value and dignity by giving them a specific color and a number system. And the whole point of this imprisonment is that they have to learn to survive. And the whole setup is that if they don't follow the rules of the games, they're killed. And this has become a, a, a major entertainment um, thing for people. And, and it really is a cultural diagnosis, if we think about it, of what I would call murder entertainment. Things like horror movies, things like uh, shows that glamorize or laugh at the killing of human beings. And all of us have probably found entertainment in those things from time to time. And I think all of us could probably evaluate why. Why do we find that entertaining or amusing? Because what those shows are really putting into our minds is that these human beings, they really don't have any more value than the dog that's in your yard or the turtle that's in the sea. That we're all part of the natural species, you have the human species as an animal, and you have these other animals. But God's word says something very different, that human beings have value beyond any other creature because God has put his very image on us. And so what we're going to see this morning is that God, the giver of life, has given value to human life because we are made in his image. And as his image bearers, we should seek to preserve the life of other image bearers. Now, that's my thesis. Usually my thesis is a little more concise, but I wanted to get all that in there. So if you're a note taker, let me read this for you again. God, the giver of life, has given value to human life because we are made in his image. And as image bearers, we should seek to preserve the life of other image bearers. Let's, let's read our passage this morning from Genesis 9, 1 through 7. It says this. This is after the flood. This is after God has actually judged humankind for their rebellion against him. And God says this to Noah and his sons. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we, we, all of us in this room, and I, have not shown dignity and love and value to all human beings as, as you have called us to, as fellow image bearers. I myself have laughed and been entertained by a culture that degrades human life. And so would you convict my own heart and convict all of us and show us from your word the truth of how we can show dignity and value to all human beings that you have created in your image. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, as I said, we're going to talk about the value of human life and how all human beings have the right to life. And we're going to cover that in three ways. I'm going to talk about how we are called to protect life and then how we are called to prosper life, which I will explain. And then how we are called as the church specifically to proclaim life to all people. So protect Prosper and proclaim life is what we're going to be looking at. Now, all of us are familiar with the Ten Commandments, and one of those commandments actually says, do not murder or do not kill. And one of the things we understand in our tradition of, of, of faith is that when God gives us a command, whether that's a negative command, do not do something, or a positive command, do something, that there's also the negative or positive implication of that. And so what do I mean by that is you, you also see in Scripture the command, do not steal. But then in the New Testament, Ephesians, we're told not only should the thief stop stealing, but they should get a job and earn money and then give generously to others. That's the positive implication of the command not to steal. And so what we understand is when you get a command that says, do not kill, do not take the life of another human being, do not murder that person, we also understand that the positive application of that is how do you protect life and give life and preserve life and prosper life. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so under the first point, under the idea of protecting life, there are many things within our culture where this applies. There's actually a theme throughout Scripture. If you read through the Scripture, you see a consistent theme of God's care and mercy for the, for the vulnerable, for the defenseless, for those who need assistance, need help, need protection, who cannot defend themselves. 
And so God actually, we'll see in our second point, specifically gives us commands about how we are to treat the poor and the widowed and all those. So what I want to show you first under this first point is what does it look like practically to defend or to protect life? Before I get to a biblical understanding of this, I just want to point out the contradiction or really the irony of evolution. Evolution believes that the stronger survive, right? That over time, the survival of the fittest, the stronger of us survive. And I do not believe this, but I just want to point out a contradiction to you that might kind of, I'm going to figure out how to say this very gently. Um, COVID, if people really believe in evolution, why don't we just let COVID do what it's supposed to do? Wipe out the weak. And let the strong survive. You see, there's a cultural evolutionary contradiction. Now, we don't believe that in the church. Why? Because we believe human beings have dignity given to them as image bearers of God. And so we should desire to protect life when it comes to all kinds of diseases and sicknesses and illnesses. But I just wanted you to see the contradiction there right in the evolutionary understanding of human life. If we're all just survival of the fittest, why bother defending life? You see that contradiction? And so what do we understand under biblical terms? What do we understand? We're under, we understand that all human beings deserve to be protected. And so the Bible points out several categories. It points out widows. It says, for the widows, care for them. Those who have lost their husbands. And, and in Scripture, this is really specifically talking about those older widows who culturally they could not be remarried and they would not be remarried. You see, in that cultural setting, in that time, historically, widows had no place in society. They were helpless. They couldn't earn money on their own. They were actually considered um, damaged goods and people who were just a burden to society. And so for the church, when God commanded the church positively, take in the widows, that was a cultural um, that, that was culturally not only different, but in some ways offensive. Why would you take on this extra burden? That's not your responsibility. And yet the Christian church did that because God had cared for them. So you take in the widows. In the same way, they were told to take in the orphans. Now orphans, this, this actually goes back just within the last two to three hundred years that orphans were despised. Orphans were just a burden to society. They were, um, they, were a they were a hazard. They were trouble. They were just a nuisance to society. And so often orphans had to defend for themselves. Going all the way back to Christ early Christian church culture, but also just in the last two to three hundred years, if you go back in history, you'll see that the same mentality was true for orphans. And so the movement of orphanages and adoption of orphans really kicked back up in London under the ministry of, of several Christian people, one of whom is the preacher Charles Spurgeon, who started up an orphanage. And so the, this whole idea of taking care of orphans has always been mostly a Christian understanding to care for those who, are the who have no fathers, no mothers. And so as the church, we too are to care for the widows and orphans. We see that in James 1 and other places in Scripture. Now, before we get on to other topics, um, I wanted to talk about one specific person in history. Her name is Margaret Sanger. You may not know that name. You may know that name. 
But Margaret Sanger actually believed in a, a, a theory of um, human, well, I'll just say, she believed in what's called eugenics. I don't know if you've heard that phrase or not, but eugenics is the practice or advocacy of controlled selective breeding of human populations to improve the population's genetic composition. So eugenics believes that we should take the best of society, the best of people, and only allow them to have children. And so Margaret Sanger said things like this, we are paying for and even submitting to the dictates of an ever-increasing, unceasingly spawning class of human beings who never should have been born at all. She also said, before eugenists and others were laboring for racial betterment, we must first clear the way for birth controls. The advocates of birth control, the eugenists for instance, are seeking to assist race towards the elimination of the unfit. She also says we should give certain dysgenic groups in our population their choice of segregation or sterilization. They only have one choice. They should either segregate themselves away from the rest of society or we should sterilize them so they cannot reproduce. Today, eugenics is suggested by the most diverse minds as the most adequate and thorough avenue in the solution of racial, political, and social problems. So Margaret Sanger actually skillfully crafted her language and used phrases that would attract people who maybe were moderately opposed to her thinking, in order that she could blatantly spew her just unbelievable things like we should get rid of the unfit. She called certain categories of people garden weeds that just needed to be pulled out of society and of human beings who never should have been born at all. Now, if you don't know who Margaret Sanger is, Margaret Sanger is the founder of Planned Parenthood. And through her ideals and her racial prejudices, she founded a company that now performs 350,000 abortions a year. A lot of those in minority places. And over the last several years, since 1973, specifically 19 million black babies have been aborted. And so, this is Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Now, Planned Parenthood, for a time, actually tried to defend Margaret Sanger and say she wasn't a racist. She believed in eugenics, yes, eugenics, yes, but she wasn't specifically racist. Well, they have not been able to actually defend and prove that. And it actually, the more evidence that comes up, like I just read to you, it's very clear that she was a racist. And that part of her idea of eugenics was to get rid of certain races and, and, and excel the race that she was a part of. She was a Caucasian woman in the 1920s. This, this mindset of eugenics is actually the same theory and reasoning that the Nazi Germans used to get rid of Jews during the extermination times of the Holocaust. And so, why do I point that out? Because abortion, in many ways, I believe, is a modern-day holocaust. And that's not popular in our culture, is it? Not at all. Instead, you get phrases like reproductive rights. You know, these, these, these winning phrases that maybe try to sound positive when in the background what they really mean is taking the life of other human beings. 
pulling them apart out of the womb while they're still alive. Terrible practices for the purpose of murdering other children. Now listen, as the church, I do think we need to speak against this and in certain settings even point out the horrors of what happens when, when abortions are being performed. And so as the church, we need to step up and go against culture. We saw this actually in early Christian history when this same idea of unwanted babies actually produced a culture in Roman society of infanticide, where literally people who didn't want their babies would take them to the local trash heap and just leave them out there. And this was culturally acceptable. It was just kind of the cultural norm. If you, if you had a baby that when they were born, they were disabled, you just take them and dispose of them. If you have a baby that was unplanned, then you just take them and dispose of them. If, you can't, if you're too poor to provide, you just take them and dispose of them. Well, this was the cultural norm in early Christian history during the Roman times. And so after people were converted to the Christian faith and realized all these people are made in the image of God, they have dignity and value, Christians would go out to the local trash heap and listen for the cries and find these babies who had been dumped and take them into their own homes and care for them. Some of them they had to care until they died because of their sickness. Some of them they found dead, they would bury because they knew they had human dignity and value. But the point is, they took them in. So let me just say this, church. Are you pro-life? I'm pro-life. But are you pro-life or are you just pro-birth? Let me just say what I mean by that. And this is convicting for me too, okay? I want to say what I mean by that. In our society today, there are 900,000 abortions performed every year. That's 2,500 abortions a day, 12,000 in our state alone, and 14 per day in our state. 14 children a day. Also, right now, in this specific moment, in the U.S., there are 400,000 uh, kids in the foster care system ready to be taken into their homes or adopted. There are 108,000 who are ready to be adopted right now, waiting to be taken into a new home. In the world, there are 153 million orphans worldwide. Now, I did a little bit of math, and you can check me on this later, and we, we can look at the stats together, but by my math, if one in every three churches, not people, if one in every three churches in the U.S. adopted one child, U.S. orphanage would be eliminated. One in every three churches in the U.S. If three churches, if three people per church worldwide, three people per church, we've got, you know, what, 30, 40 people in here? If three of us, and if that happened in every church in the world, adopted a child and took a child into their home, there would be no more orphans worldwide. No more orphans in the world. And we have specific commands in Scripture to care for the widows and orphans. And so I just want to ask all of us, 
want to ask those who are really excited about what Texas has passed, at least for now, temporarily, hopefully more long term. Let me just ask you, if that goes through and if all of these, these abortions that were taking place are no longer allowed to take place, 2,500 per day, is the church ready? Not only to say I'm pro-birth, but I'm pro-life. I am ready to care for the foster kids and the orphans in our society. Are we ready? If, if this passes, there's going to be a lot more children in our world that need help and need a home. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing is what does it look like to protect life? Now, I wanted also to just speak specifically to any of those who maybe have friends or maybe you yourself are out there thinking, well, I'm not pro-life, I'm pro-choice. Here's what I believe. And so I just wanted to try to kind of address a few specific arguments or phrases or defenses that come up. And I know this is a little, this is a little more serious, but we're, this is a crucial time in our society. We need to talk about this, and this is, this is where our, our theme has brought us this morning. So a few phrases that I'm just going to quickly try to debunk, and these really need, need to happen more in conversation over time and in friendship and with love and with care, but I just wanted to point out a few. First is my body, my choice. And here's my very simple response to that. It's not your body. That's a separate human being inside your body, but that is not your body. That's another human being's body that you have reproduced and you are now caring for in your womb. Now, some would bring up the argument of viability, right? Well, if the child is not viable, if they are not able to live on their own, then they're not actually a living human being with dignity and life. And so my response to that is my two-year-old can't live on their own. So what does that mean for them? Are they not viable? They're not worthy of life if they can't care for themselves? It's a contradicting argument. What about in cases of rape and incest? Well, first of all, less than 1% of all abortions are even in that category. So if that was our only reason, that would eliminate 240-something thousand abortions every year. But even in those cases, I would argue that that human being does not deserve to be punished because of someone else's crime. And I know this is, this is a difficult thing for you to bear, but God can also give you grace for that. And then, you know, others will actually argue that this is a white male Republican agenda. And I, I honestly don't know how to respond to that other than that is a political lie. It's just not true. This is in the Bible and it's very clear that life begins, I believe, at conception Evidence of life is apparent as early as 8 to 12 days inside the womb after conception. You have evidence, scientific evidence of life. And so this, again, this is a conversation to have outside of church, but as a preacher of the gospel and of the truth of the word of God, as we come to this topic of the right to life, we have to speak to those things. And we are called as Christians to protect life when we are able to. So that's the first thing is to protect life. The second thing is to prosper life. Now, what do I mean by that? 
not only are we to protect life, but we are also to call to help others live life to their fullest. And so this is where scripture actually, this whole idea of not only do not kill, but give life to others. And so we see the scripture point out several categories. The poor, the church is to care for the poor, right? providing housing and education and work and training and jobs when we can. We are also to provide food for the hungry, drink for the thirsty, clothing for the naked. All of this, Jesus actually says, is for his sake. Jesus in Matthew 25, starting in verse 35, says this. 34, I'm going to start there. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. See, every time we care for the poor, for the hungry, for the sick, for the thirsty, for the naked, for the disabled, every time we do that, we're actually caring for Jesus himself because these are people created in his image. And they are his and they have dignity and value. This is why the Good Samaritan in Scripture is lifted up as an example. Now the Good Samaritan, that parable when Jesus tells this story of the Good Samaritan to a group of Jewish people, the first thing you need to understand is this was racially, ethnically offensive you're going to tell, you're going to set an, a Samaritan as an example for me, a Jew? Are you kidding me? And so Jesus tells a story of these people that pass by this person who's been mugged and robbed on the side of the road. And, and Jewish leader after Jewish leader pass by. And it's the Samaritan who stops, takes them in, spends his own money to care for him, and, and commits himself to this person's well-being. And Jesus says, that's how we all need to treat others in need. This is what the church has called mercy ministry, showing mercy and compassion to those who need our help and need our assistance. And so what are we as the church and we are, what are we as believers doing to show mercy and compassion to those in need? How are we caring for the poor feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, even protecting and defending the bully and the abused? How are we seeking justice for the prisoners and visiting the prisoners in, in prison? Now listen, if you're sitting here thinking, I, I can't do all that, you're right, you can't. This is also why Jesus gives us the church. People who have different uh, desires, who have different giftings, who have different passions and callings, but we as a church should be demonstrating mercy to all kinds of people. So let me just ask, if you're thinking, I can't do all that, let me just ask, what can you do? And what do you want to do? 
Has God given you a passion and a desire for anyone in need? And what is that? And how can we as the church equip you and encourage you towards that? But then what, what can we as a church as a whole do for others? And listen, I just want to confess, I have not led well in this. I haven't. I will admit that my spiritual gifts are, are things like studying and learning and teaching and preaching. I've taken a spiritual gifts inventory, evangelism. Those are the categories that usually you know, hit the top of the list. You know what my weaknesses are? Words of encouragement, mercy, and generosity. So I need your help. Because these are my spiritual weaknesses. I need encouragement. It's not an excuse for me. I need to, I need to seek to grow in those areas. But it also means I need people who are passionate and gifted in those areas to come around me and encourage me and show me, hey, here's something we can do. And so I, as your pastor, am asking for your help as well. And so there's a lot of debates going on right now. In our society, as, as many of you know, there was a global summit last week uh, around the idea of protecting the environment. And as stewards of God's creation, we looked at this a few weeks back, we are called to take care of the planet. I'm, I'm all about that. But the conversation has turned away from the purpose of our stewardship. You see, the purpose of stewardship is to care for the earth so that human life can flourish. And so again, a contradiction in our culture is that while at the same time we're trying to protect women's rights to have an abortion, we're also arguing about environmental protection. And so it, it, it's, a, it's a cultural contradiction. And so yes, we should care for our environment, but we care for our environment in order that human life will flourish. And... Uh, Okay, let me, so that's prospering life. I'm just going to move on from that to our last point here. Our last point is that we are called not only to protect life, not only to prosper or help see life flourish and improve for people, but also we are called as a church to proclaim life. And what do I mean by that? Well, Jesus actually in a conversation with his disciples said, you know, all these people are saying these things about me. They're calling me um, a false prophet. They're calling me a hypocrite. Who do you, who do you say that I, that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And in a, in a later conversation, Jesus said, all my disciples, all these people who were following for a time, they've all left because, you know, I've become less popular. They're all leaving me. Why don't you leave me? And the disciples' response was, Lord, where would we go? You're the one who has the words of life. See, they recognized that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to earth to save sins, and who also came to give the words of life. What are the words of life? The gospel. Jesus himself is the word of life. That's what John 1 tells us. And so what are the words of life? The words of life are this. For anyone who believes in Christ... You will be forgiven of all your sins, and you will inherit eternal life forever. And so while we as the church should care about people's life and, and their flourishing, the fullness of life here on earth, 
If we stop, let me just say it this way, those first two points, protecting life and progressing life or, or prospering life, if we stop there as the church, we're just really good humanitarians. Until we proclaim life through the preaching of the gospel and the calling of people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Because if we believe that it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that our sins will be forgiven and we will inherit eternal life forever, until we share that message of good news for others and give them the opportunity to believe that for themselves so that they too will be welcomed into the kingdom of God, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are called to show deeds of kindness and deeds of mercy and acts of love, but we're also called to proclaim God's love through the preaching of the gospel, the proclaiming of life in the words of the gospel. And so listen, if you're here this morning and you've done religiosity really well, if you haven't done religiosity really well, if you grew up in church, if you did not grow up in church, if you have come and you've acknowledged, yeah, God, country, family, all that kind of stuff, listen, if you have not received Jesus Christ as your Savior for your sins, you will not inherit the eternal life that God has promised in his gospel. But if you come and acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in need of God's grace and forgiveness, and if you believe that Jesus, the Son of God, died on a cross 2,000 years ago for the forgiveness of the sins of anyone who would believe in him, God has said, you will be forgiven and you will have everlasting life. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, will have everlasting life. This is what the church primarily is called to, to proclaim life, but as we help protect life and prosper life, we earn the right with other human beings to tell them this good news. You see, if you only do the first two, you're a good humanitarian, if you forget to do the last. But if you only do a last, people are not going to listen to your message. If we just go around and we don't care for people, we don't love people, we don't show mercy to people, we don't try to help people, if we're just proclaiming truth down people's throats, what right do we have for them to listen to us if we don't show them that we love them? And this is my confession to you. I'm really good at getting up and telling people what they should do. I am. I'm less good at showing them that I care for them and that here's what I really want for them. And so pray for me. Pray for me as your pastor. As someone who is called and charged by God to lead in this, to lead in love, to lead in mercy. And really in order to do this, to come to a place where we are demonstrating that love for others, we've got to experience that love for ourselves. We've got to remind ourselves daily of the love of God for our, for us as sinners. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. You've heard me say that before. We've got to preach this good news to ourselves. And as we believe it for ourselves and see God's love for us, we'll demonstrate it to others. It's like we have to have our own heart and soul software updates. Right? I mean, just like your phone constantly is telling you, you got a new update. I thought it was fine, right? 
Well, God is telling us we need daily updates to our heart and to our soul. We need to hear the gospel daily, preach it to ourselves daily. The last thing I want to say in light of all this is God really can forgive sinners. Dr. Anthony Levitino actually has a, a testimony. If you go on YouTube, you can find him. It's really easy to find him, Dr. Anthony Levitino, if you want the spelling later. But if you just look up um, former abortionist, doctor, he'll pop up because he's one of the most popular on there. He did an interview for Focus on the Family. He's also testified to Senate. He's been all over the news. And he was a former abortionist. He himself performed 1,200 abortions. He said his primary motivation was greed, the money that was in it for him. But one day, he actually lost his own daughter in a car accident and went to work a week later after you know, mourning. And when he went back to work and performed that first abortion, he said he got absolutely sick to his stomach. And it was the first time as he pulled these different um, body parts out of this woman, it was the first time he saw a human being. And he, he left his job several months later. He went, he started going to a church that taught the Bible and preached the Bible before he was actually part of the PCUSA church who was just fine with his occupation. Um, that's the denomination we actually came out of in 1973 because they were no longer following the Bible. He went to a church that preached the Bible and preached the gospel. And he came to a point where he finally believed the gospel and found forgiveness. Something he thought he could never experience. Freedom and forgiveness and peace. And he still has guilt lingering because of that. And he said, one day when I die and I go and I, I, I'm faced in heaven, he said, the one thing I'm looking forward to the most is seeing my daughter. But the one thing I'm dreading is that I'm also going to see those 1,200 other kids. But he believes the gospel. And he has been forgiven. And his testimony is that anyone, even the worst of sinners, even he himself, God is able to forgive because his grace is sufficient. And as we sang earlier, our sins, there are many, but his mercy is more. God really is a God full of mercy, full of steadfast love, full of forgiveness. And so let me just close with this. If you have ever participated or cooperated or defended abortion or know someone who has, yes, we do believe that's sin. But we also believe God can forgive and he will forgive and he will heal. There is a real symptom called post-abortive um, traumatic syndrome. And it's real, even though some in the culture are trying to deny that that's a real symptom. It's real. And there's evidence. And there's cases like Levy that have to, that have to counsel people who, who, who have that symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. But listen, even God can help them. And the gospel can change everything. He can forgive and he can heal. And so as the church, we need to be full of mercy and ready to help people in need, whatever that need is. Are you with me? Are you with me? Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you and we praise you and we acknowledge that we too, we are sinners desperately in need of your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, your love, your steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord God, would you be with us as we continue to worship. Help us to worship you as you deserve, as a father that is full of mercy and forgiveness. And as we come and remember your life and death for us on the cross, would you show that to us that we might experience it for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.